how amazing a meal intended to picture the love of Christ for his church and the love of Christ's people for one another and instead it had come to symbolize the differences between them and be a source of division. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you know why Christians participate in certain ordinances? What is the Lord's table, and why is it so important for believers? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled The Lord's Table. You know, throughout our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll be looking at the topic of communion. You'll discover why the Lord's table is a crucial part of the corporate worship of the church and how every individual Christian must understand how to receive it, how it is to be celebrated, and how to rightly prepare for it. Well, Tom, the church in Corinth had some issues regarding the Lord's table, didn't they? That's right, Bill. You know, sadly, the church in Corinth has become a sort of poster child for a problem church, and rightly so. And yet the Lord was at work there, and he wanted through Paul to address some important issues. And one of those issues had to do with how they worshiped, and specifically with how they celebrated the Lord's table. It had become something that was divisive, something that separated the haves from the have-nots, something that they had misunderstood the real spiritual significance of. And so Paul addresses that, desiring to build them up in the faith and for them to enjoy this amazing ordinance the Lord gave us in the way that he intended. Thanks, Tom. And friend, right now, let's join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. The Old Testament is filled with ceremony, filled with countless ceremonies that the people of God were to embrace and involve themselves in. There were the seven annual festivals, three of which they were supposed to celebrate in Jerusalem. There were some 12 to 13 new moon festivals each year. There were five personal sacrifices, different kinds that were to be offered at various points throughout the year. There were some 1,200 national sacrifices, ceremonies that were to be performed each year of Israel's existence. So the Old Testament believer was surrounded by rites and ceremonies. They were constantly a part of his or her life. This morning, I want us to begin to study one of only two ceremonies or ordinances that the Lord gave to his church. An ordinance, we use that expression, we use that as opposed to sacrament because of how badly informed the word sacrament has become, but an ordinance is simply a rite or a ceremony that we have been commanded to do. One of those two rites that we have been commanded to do occurs only one time in every believer's life. It's the ordinance of baptism. The other ceremony is to happen throughout our lives, and it's to happen often And so it must have, for the believer, a huge significance. Christians have been taking the Lord's table for now almost 2,000 years, 
But sadly, very few really understand the richness of what the Bible teaches about this powerful remembrance of our Lord and the spiritual benefit that it can be to our souls. The obvious text that we need to turn to to sort of fill out our understanding of this wonderful ceremony is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I invite you to turn there with me this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse 17. Ultimately, in our two weeks together, I hope to make it through the, the entire part of the chapter that begins at verse 17 and runs through the end. This morning, I'll just read a portion of it. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now let me give you the context for what Paul addresses here. Beginning back in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul begins to address issues and answer questions that the leaders in the church in Corinth had raised with him, probably by a letter or by a messenger. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. The first issue he addresses there in chapter 7 is the issue of marriage, singleness and marriage. Then beginning in chapter 8 and running through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul deals with the issue of Christian liberty, another series of questions that had been raised. Beginning in chapter 11, verse 2, and running through the end of chapter 14, Paul addresses the issue of worship. Specifically, there were several issues related to worship that he felt needed to be addressed and that had been raised with him. There's the appropriate role of men and women in the context of worship. That's the first part of chapter 11, beginning in chapter 11, verse 2, running down through verse 16. When you get to chapter 12 through chapter 14, of course, he deals with the very controversial issue of spiritual gifts and specifically the abuse of the gift of tongues in the church in Corinth. But between those two issues related to worship, between the role of men and women in worship and the use of spiritual gifts, we find this brief 
crucial passage about the Lord's table. Here, Paul is not responding to a question from the church. Instead, he is prompted by something he has heard to address this topic. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, you would see that he says, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, that there are quarrels among you. I've heard about something. Chapter 5, verse 1, he makes a similar statement where he mentions, it is actually reported to me that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as it doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. So Paul in this letter is both dealing with questions they have raised and reports he has heard. Here, when it comes to the issue of the Lord's table, it's not a question they asked, but rather it is an issue about which he has heard. Notice verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. In fact, there were flagrant abuses of the Lord's table. So in this passage, Paul writes to correct problems in the public worship in Corinth related to the Lord's table. But as Paul always does, he doesn't simply deal with the abuse, with the excess. He also lays down a sort of thoroughgoing framework for understanding this ordinance that our Lord has given to us. If I could reduce this section to a brief summary, it would be this. The Lord's table is a crucial part of the corporate worship of the church, and every individual Christian must understand how we received it, how it is to be celebrated, what it means, and how to rightly prepare for it. Those are the issues that Paul addresses in this paragraph. Let me give you a sort of roadmap of this passage that we will follow as we work our way through it. First of all, in verses 17 to 22, we're going to see the corruption of the Lord's table that was going on there in Corinth. And then in verses 23 to 25, the inception of the Lord's table, the original institution of the Lord's table by our Lord himself. Verses 24 to 26, there's a little bit of overlap here. Verses 24 to 26, the implications of the Lord's table, that is, what is its meaning? What is it about? And then beginning in verse 27 through the end of the chapter, the preparation of the Lord's table. How do you adequately prepare yourself to take of the Lord's table? This morning, we're going to begin with just the first couple of those. I want us to begin by looking at the corruption of the Lord's table. What was going on in Corinth? Notice, Paul begins in verse 17 with this shocking statement. But in giving this instruction, literally this command, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. To put that in perspective, look back in verse 2 of the same chapter, when Paul begins to deal with the role of men and women in the worship, he says, I praise you because you do remember some of what I communicated to you about this topic. But here, as he transitions to the issue of the Lord's table in verse 17, he says, when it comes to this issue, I have no praise for you whatsoever. In fact, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Your corporate meeting as a church does not promote your spiritual health as it should. Instead, it had gotten so bad 
that their time together was actually a spiritual detriment. It was injuring their souls rather than helping them. What was intended to build them up was tearing them down. Now, what possibly could be so bad that when the church met, according to Paul, it would have been better if they had just stayed home? Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Literally, by the way, that first expression, when you come together in assembly, when you gather for corporate worship, there are divisions. The Greek word for divisions is schisma, from which we get the English word schism. The word literally means a tear. Something is tearing you apart. Now, these are not the same divisions he addressed earlier in the first few chapters of this letter. Those divisions were based on personalities, particular leaders they liked, particularly preaching styles they admired more than others. They had made oratory of the first century variety too big an issue among them. These divisions here are different. And we'll see what they are in just a moment. But notice Paul says, I've heard this report, verse 18, and in part, I believe it. I love that. It just shows us, it's like a window into the apostle's soul. Think about if you were the Apostle Paul dealing with the church in Corinth. Wouldn't you say that it's accurate and fair to say that the Corinthians had proven that they were capable of just about anything? So when he gets a report of what's going on at the Lord's table, he doesn't do what you or I might be tempted to do. Well, of course, I just come to expect it. He assumes and believes the very best. He's going to tell us to do that, doesn't he? Just a couple of chapters later in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, love believes all things. Love believes the best about people. And he's confident that surely not everyone he knows in that church is involved in this. Surely it's not quite as bad as has been reported to him. Verse 19. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. That is a fascinating verse. The word for factions is the Greek word from which we get the word heresy. Its root idea is to make a choice of one party or group over another. And here Paul says there must be factions. There must be. Goes along with the fallen human condition. And while Paul here and other places says that such factions are deplorable and sinful, he says here that God in his wise providence actually uses them for good so that those who are approved may become evident. God allows factions and divisions in the church so that those whom God has tested and approved become obvious. What does that mean? Well, it could mean two things. It could mean that divisions make those who are truly Christians obvious and those who are not truly obvious. It could also mean that divisions make those who are more truly spiritual obvious. I think Paul means both are true. Divisions show the true nature of someone's soul. When they stand for the truth over embracing error, and how 
they stand for the truth against error? Do they do it in the spirit of Christ, in the spirit of the gospel? And here, of course, it's not even about that, as we'll see in a moment. These sorts of things reveal the reality of people's hearts. Now, in verses 20 to 22, Paul goes on to explain explicitly the nature of the divisions that are going on in Corinth. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, we're 2,000 years removed from what was going on in Corinth. This is one of those times when, you know, everybody wants to bring the Bible into our times. You know, what does this mean to me? You cannot answer the question, what does this mean to me, until you answer the question, what did this mean to the people who were reading it in Corinth? You have to, instead of transporting them into our times to really understand the Bible, you have to transport us back to their times and get a grasp of what was happening there. Only then can you make the bridge into the present. And this is one of those cases that's very clear. To fully appreciate what's going on, I want to take us back for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're a first century believer in Corinth. The New Testament church and the church in Corinth gathered on the first day of the week, on Sunday, for corporate worship. They did so in commemoration, as we do, of our Lord's resurrection. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Give to the church when you come together so that I don't have to make collections when I come. This is what the church has done from the very beginning. They met on Sunday. But listen carefully, in the Roman Empire, in the first century, Sunday was not a day off. It was not part of some kind of weekend, as it is for us. So for the Christians, Sunday was always also a work day. It was both a day of worship and it was a day in which they worked and fulfilled their daily responsibilities. So the corporate gathering of the church had to be fit around their other responsibilities. Now we don't have a lot of information about how they did that, but we do have a little that's very helpful. Some of the information we have comes from outside the scripture, and some of it comes from within. Let me start by taking you to the source outside the scripture. Pliny the Younger, as he's called, was a Roman official who wrote a series of letters to the Roman Emperor Trajan in about 110 AD. So he's a Roman official writing to the emperor about 110 AD. This is about 40 years after Paul's death and really only about 15 years after the Apostle John's death and the writing of the final books of the New Testament. So this is very close to the events of the New Testament. In one of Pliny's letters to Trajan, He wrote this about Christians and Christian worship. Listen carefully. They met on a stated day. Now, we know that day was Sunday, the first day of the week. Before it was light. That kind of weed out your church attendance, wouldn't it? Before it was light and addressed a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity, binding themselves by a solemn oath, not for the purposes of any wicked design, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. 
He goes on. This is again, now a Roman official who isn't a believer writing to the emperor, the Roman emperor Trajan. So they met in the morning before light, after which it was their custom to separate for a normal day of work and then reassemble to eat in common a harmless meal. So, putting a picture together, here's what New Testament worship looked like. They met very early Sunday morning, probably while it was still dark. That makes sense, doesn't it? What happened on the first Resurrection Sunday? The women went to the tomb when? While it was still dark, before sunrise. And then they had a normal day of work. And then on Sunday night, New Testament Christians assembled again for a service. That service began with a meal. By the way, can I just say that their weekly routine and commitment to corporate worship should convict all of us for how lazy and soft we can be about making the gathering of the church a priority for ourselves and our families? Most of us, not all of us, but most of us have the day off. And it's still hard, right? Think about those New Testament believers. Up while it's still dark, gathering to worship their Lord, then going for a full day's work, and then when the day of work is done, assembling again as the church. Now that's where the scripture picks up. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Because we have a little more description about that evening meeting on the Lord's day. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Relax, I'm not taking any biblical warrant from that text to do the same. This is a special occasion. He's not going to see them again, and so he wants to get everything out that he has to say. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. There's one of the clearest New Testament pictures of what first century worship looked like. They're meeting in an upper room, a large area in one of the wealthier members' houses, and they're there in the evening. And notice that they met in the evening to break bread. That expression, breaking bread, is probably a general expression for a meal. But not just any meal, a meal that was closed by a celebration of the Lord's table. They did that because the very first Lord's Supper was a full meal, the Passover meal accompanied by this new ordinance, the last supper with the Lord's Supper. That common meal then, when they came together in the evening, that common meal followed by the Lord's Supper at the very end of it was then followed by a message from the Word of God. I'm sure there was singing. We know that from other places in the New Testament. It's not mentioned here. And the other issues of worship that are included throughout the New Testament. So, that's the background. That Sunday night meal came to be called a love feast. In fact, Jude refers to it as he even deals with false teachers. In Jude 1.12, he says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. That's a reference to that meal on Sunday night when they shared in common a meal and then at the end of it took the Lord's table together and then the other aspects of their worship. 
So what was going on in sure of the Lord's day for the first century believers? What was going on in Corinth? Go back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. When you meet together, you think you're celebrating the Lord's table, but it's not. Paul says, don't even call it that. It's become something completely different. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat, drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Lord's Table. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music